Thank you so much for coming out to DHC. We are wrapping up our series that we are calling Blessed and Stressed the last five weeks. We have been talking about this idea that as Christians, and many of us here are Christians, as Christians, we know we're blessed. Okay? We know we're blessed. We're so grateful for everything that God is doing in our life, for all the things that he has done, for all the stuff he's going to be doing, for all the things he's doing behind the scenes that we don't even know. We are so grateful. We are blessed. And yet, if we're being honest, we're stressed. Okay? There's just, there are aspects of our lives, areas of our life, where our faith and our feelings, shall we say, they're not exactly lined up. They're not exactly on the same page. And so every week, we've been taking a look at specific stressors that many of us have to deal with, trying to find out what God has to say about these stressors, and to see what tips he has for us to mitigate the stress, feel a little less stress, and hopefully a lot more blessed in the process. So, as we wrap up today, what I want to do is I want to talk about financial stress. Now, there's a lot of things that we as a country can't agree on, pretty much everything at this point. But the one thing that we can all agree on, I would argue, is that a lot of us are struggling financially. We are. According to a CNBC poll, 70% of Americans are feeling financially stressed. You dig into the numbers in this article, you'll find out that a whopping 60% of Americans are now living paycheck to paycheck. Just on Monday, Forbes released an article called The Silent Strain, How Debt Takes a Toll on Mental Health. And it's all about how our debt impacts way more than your finances. It, it can destroy your mental health. It can wreak havoc inside of our relationships. This article had, honestly, a ton of really interesting statistics. And I just want to kind of pepper you with a few of them because I think they're relatable. I think they're eye-opening. It said that 77% of American households have some form of debt, which means that, if this is true, pretty much all of us here in this room have some kind of debt, and you're not, you're not alone in that. 54% say that they always or often feel stressed because of that debt. This next one is sad. 60% say financial stress has led to disagreements in their relationships. It, it does put a strain on our marriage. It does put a strain on our families. 48% report Sleep problems, 40% say they're having higher anxiety. 38% are saying they're having a diminished social life, which honestly sounds like a positive to me. <laughs> you know me, the best plans are canceled ones. So this, I'd put that in the pro category. And lastly, 34% experienced depression. Our financial problems are destroying us, okay? We may be blessed in every aspect of our lives, but our ability to actually enjoy those blessings, it is being held hostage by this very present debt that so many of us have. We, we feel like we are handcuffed, quite frankly, because of our, our spending. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, according to Scripture, said this, borrow money and you are the lender's slave. And any one of you who has credit card debt knows exactly what he's talking about. You feel like a slave. Okay, what does a slave not have? Freedom. Freedom. You lack financial freedom. Your debt calls the shots. Your debt tells you what you can and what you cannot do. For example, even if you wanted to be a stay-at-home parent, let's call it, right? Even if you wanted that, you can't be. It's not an option. You, you just don't have that kind of financial freedom in your life. Even if you wanted to be generous in your life, you, you, you just you can't. It's not an option. You don't have that kind of financial freedom. And so when you hear about a need, whether it's a church, your kid's school, or or even in the neighborhood, 
all you can do is pray that somebody else comes along to meet that need. We've become slaves to our debt, to our finances, to our spending, and we are stressed. So what's the solution? Based on what I'm seeing in those stats, based on what I'm hearing in conversations with folks, and based on what I see in Scripture, I think what we all need, and many of us don't have, is financial breathing room. Right here. What, what is this? This is the amount available beyond what is necessary. It's a difference between what you have and what you need. To put it practically for us today, I would say that financial breathing room is having money left over at the end of the month. That's it. It's having money available in your life to, to help somebody in need. It's having money available to give if you want to give. It's having money available to travel without being stressed. You know, when you finally go on that vacation and you're stressed out because, you know, lunch was like a $50 and you can't even enjoy yourself. It's having money available to enjoy things you like, going to dinner with friends, buying your kid a toy. When you have financial breathing room, okay, when there's money left over at the end of the month, it gives you the ability to be financially at rest. Not anxious, not worried, not always afraid, not a slave. When you have financial breathing room, you can finally be at peace. But the truth is, most people don't have this. And I firmly believe that God wants us to have that kind of breathing room in our life. In Proverbs 21, Solomon says this, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. Meaning, there's more than enough. There's financial breathing room. At the end of the month, the wise person has more than that person needs. But a foolish man, he says, devours all he has. Other translation says, spends whatever he gets. In other words, whatever comes in goes right out. And at the end of the month, there's none left over. There's no breathing room. And, and God forbid something unexpected happens, like he's got to fix his car or something. He's got no way of covering that. And so he's stressed. And he's squeezed. He is a slave to his finances. Now I want you to notice something. I want you to see how it says in the house of the wise. This is interesting. Because look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say in the house of the, the rich is more than enough. It doesn't say in the house of the two-income family is financial breathing room. It doesn't say in the house of those making over six figures is financial freedom. It says in the house of the wise. The wise have more than enough. The wise, regardless of their income level, have financial peace. Now, many of us who lack this financial breathing room, right, what we think we have is an income problem. That's what we think we have. We think, well, if I just made more money, then I would have financial freedom. But come on, you know that's not the case. Because the more you make, the more you spend. Your spending just trails right behind your income, right? It's not an income problem. I, I know people who make good money, okay? Good money. They got a nice house. They got a nice car. They got nice watches, nice handbags. They go on nice vacations. They eat at nice restaurants. They have the appearance of success. They have the appearance of financial freedom. But the reality is at the end of the month, there is nothing left over they have devoured all they have. And so when they drive their fancy car to their fancy dinner, they spend the whole ride arguing about money. Most of us don't have an income problem. 
What a lot of us have is a lifestyle problem. We have lifestyled our way out of financial freedom. Solomon says the wise person has plenty left over at the end of the month, but a foolish man devours everything he has. Why? Why? Why is it that so many of us devour everything that we have? Why is it that we trade financial breathing room, we trade financial peace and flexibility and security for material things? I believe it's because culture is telling us a lie. They're telling us that happiness equals more than I currently have. That's the definition of, of happiness to our culture. What, what, whatever you have, it's not enough. If you get something else, well, then you'll be better. If you just had a little bit more, then you'll be happy. Our culture says you deserve it. Treat yourself, right? And if you can't afford it, that's okay. Just make payments. Get it now. It's going to make you happy. It's why we have folks in their 20s trying to obtain the same lifestyle it took their parents 30 years to get. Because we think we deserve it now. We don't have an income problem. We got a lifestyle problem. And if you really want to dig down to the root of it, it's not just a lifestyle problem. It's a spiritual problem. Jesus said this. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth which is the exact opposite of what so many of us are trying to do. We're trying to acquire as much as possible. We're trying to get more and more and more. We want the latest. We want the greatest, to quote Vanilla Ice. Anything less than the best is a felony, all right? Our goal is to store up as much as we possibly can here on earth. And Jesus says, that's a mistake. That's, don't, do, don't do that. It's foolish. Instead, he says, store your treasures in heaven. See, right now, many of us have this mindset that whatever comes to us is for us, and so we're going to use it on us now. Jesus says, I, I need you to change your financial focus from you to God, from doing things your way and the way you've always done it to doing it God's way. Then he says something profound, and quite frankly, it's a little scary. He says, for your heart will always be where your riches are. In other words, where your money goes your heart will follow Jesus' words, not mine. And so for those of us whose hearts are not in a good place right now, for those of us whose hearts are not at peace because of our financial situation, Jesus forces us to ask a question. Where is our money going? Because that's where our heart is going. And according to the latest statistics, the average Christian donates about 2% of their income to the kingdom of heaven. Two, storing up treasures in heaven, as Jesus would say. That means 98% of our income goes to this world. That means, according to Jesus' principle, 98% of our heart goes to the world. And we wonder why we want more of what the world has to offer and why we're no longer satisfied with God. It's because for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We got it backwards. And so Jesus steps in and he gives us a financial principle that should you implement in, into your life, not only will you be less stressed, not only will you find financial breathing room, but you will, most importantly, and I guarantee this because scripture says it, you'll be blessed beyond measure. Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. Then, that's the promise, then all your other needs will be met as well. In other words, 
put God first in your finances. He's saying you gotta, you got to make a decision to put God first because in our world, we tend to come first, don't we? Jesus says put God first. And now this is way bigger than the tithe. We're going to talk about that a little bit, okay? This is about being prayerful in our finances. This is about asking God for his guidance as to how to manage what he has entrusted us with. It's about seeking his will and his direction. And it's most importantly about putting his kingdom before our kingdom. So what happens when we do that? What happens when we decide to put God first in our finances? A couple of things. First thing, I'd argue, you'll experience God's blessing. In Malachi chapter 3, Old Testament, God makes a request. I would argue it's a command. And then he makes a promise. He says this in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, if you've been around church any length of time, chances are you've heard this word tithe before. It literally means tenth. Tithe means tenth, 10%. And so in the Old Testament, as you see here, God wanted his followers to bring 10% of their income, since money wasn't available back then a lot of times, 10% of, of their grain or their produce or whatever it is that they use in their life, bring it back into the storehouse, that is, his temple. And it was this idea that he has given every single one of us everything that we have from our health to our wealth, and now as an act of worship, he's asking us to donate 10% back to building his kingdom here on this earth. Now, many of us hear this, as did the original Jews, and they think, you got to be crazy. <laughs> like, you want me to live on 90% of my income? To which God says, test me in this. This is the only time in all of Scripture that God says you're actually allowed to test him. Test me in this. In other words, don't you trust me? You don't think I'm going to take care of you? You think I'm going to ask you to partner with me in building my kingdom and growing my kingdom, and I'm going to let you suffer as a result? Test me in this, it says, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. To tithe, I would argue, is one of the most tangible and practical ways to put God first. To say, God, I, I'm going to commit to giving 10% back to you, and I'm going to trust that you can do more with the 90% than I could do with the 100%. Now, I'll tell you this. I personally um, have always tithed. It's about 18. And I was always taught that it should be 10%. That's, that's how I read it. That's, how I, that's what I believe. However, there are many respected theologians, big-time, well-respected pastors in America who truly believe that 10% was an Old Testament number. Okay? that Christians are no longer commanded in the, new in the New Covenant to give 10% anymore. And truth be told, they make compelling arguments. They really do, okay? And, and, and so they point to something that Paul says, and I want to show you. I want to give you all the facts because I want you to be able to choose what you believe is the case. So Paul says this. You, speaking to Christians, must each decide in your heart how much to give. Paul says it's a personal decision, but decide ahead of time on how much you're going to give. See, decide before you make any other decisions. Decide before you make any other decisions, any other purchases. Decide when it's the beginning of the month, not the end of the month. Decide when you've got all that God has given you, not with what's left over. It's putting his kingdom before your kingdom. And so you say, okay, 
I'm, I'm going to make a decision to put God first. I'm going to give a percentage, whatever you think that looks like in your life, back to him. Now, here's the key, Paul says. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Don't give because some preacher guilted you into giving. Don't do that. Don't give because some church beats you over the head about it every single week ad nauseum. Don't give because of that. And do not give because some pastor said, if you tithe, God will make you wealthy. Don't take a picture of this. I don't want this on social media because they don't know the content of what we're talking about, okay? This is health and wealth prosperity. This is what some preachers will tell you. This is not what scripture says. God promises, you saw it, to bless you abundantly. But he makes no specific promises as to how he's going to do that. Now look, we're friends here, okay? I am well aware that many of you, as I have had, have had awful experiences with churches that torture you about giving. It's why we here at DHC give it a very light touch. You've probably noticed that. Because we want to make sure that if and when you do decide to give back to the Lord, you do it with a cheerful heart. You do it as an act of worship. You do it because you want to. And when you do, Paul says, God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need. It's counterintuitive. Paul says, when you put God first in your finances, when you give to his kingdom as an act of worship, with a happy heart, he will always make sure you're taken care of. That's a promise. He'll always make sure. You got everything you need. And not only that, he will make sure that there is plenty left over to share with others. When you put God first in your finances, he will make sure you have breathing room, plenty left over, so that you are not a slave to your finances. So when you put God first in your finances, what happens? You'll see his blessing. The next thing is you'll become supernaturally content. Solomon in Proverbs 15 says this. It's better, it's better to obey the Lord and have only a little than to be very rich and terribly anxious. That's the word of God. And yet, I think there are very few people who actually believe this is true. Scripture says that it is better to have a little and the peace of God. It is better to have a little with financial freedom than to have a ton of stuff and a ton of stress. The world says more will make you happy. God says happiness is contentment with what you already have. Paul one day was writing a letter to a young pastor named Timothy, and I would argue he restates this. He says true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Now this word great here, when he wrote that in Greek, he wrote the word mega. Right? So Paul's like, look, if you want to know what having mega wealth looks like, and I think we all want to know what that looks like, he's like, it's living a godly life and being content with what you have. That's mega wealth. That's great wealth. Okay? Reasonable question is, what does godliness mean then? We're supposed to be doing this. What is this? Godliness means to be godlike, to do what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? He put others first. He loved others. Okay, so it's about pouring our life into other people. It's about making a difference in the lives of your friends and your families and your neighbors. Paul is saying, when you live a life of serving others and 
you're content with what you have. Man, you got great wealth. And the byproduct of this is that you won't be driven to fill your life with things. All those things you went broke trying to acquire because the world said you need more and more and more, all of a sudden, you don't need them anymore. You're totally content driving that older car because you have financial freedom and you're blessed because you serve others. You're totally content living on a budget because you have financial freedom and you are blessed because God is enough. When you put God first in your finances, you'll experience his blessings, you'll be supernaturally content, and lastly, you will have more of what matters. Now, you may not have what everyone else wants materially, but you will have what no one else has spiritually. You will end up with more of what matters most. In Proverbs 8, God says this, With me are riches and honor. With me are lasting wealth and success. My fruit is better than fine gold. My gifts are better than the finest silver. He says the things that I give are better than the things this world gives. See, when you seek God first, instead of filling your life with things that don't really matter, you will begin to fill your life with things that do matter. And it will be better. Paul, in that same letter to that young pastor named Timothy, says, hey, tell your congregation, tell them to do good. Tell them to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. When you put God first in your finance, a shift occurs inside of you. We're no longer just consumers. Now we're contributors. It's no longer about acquiring. Now it's about giving back. And we begin to invest in the things that matter most, God and other people. And by doing this, Paul would say, they will be, here it is, storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Just what Jesus said about his will for our finances. When you put God first, when you seek his will, when you seek to serve others and not just yourself, when you resist the temptation to chase after more and more and more and you refocus your attention on doing good with what you have, then you will truly experience life. You will be blessed and you'll be a whole lot less stressed. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first week here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know just exactly what to do with what you think. So this week I have two kind of questions for you, two challenges, if you will. First one is this. What would it look like for you to live below your means? What would this look like? I mean, to pull from Solomon, what would it look like to not devour everything that you have? What would it look like? What would you have to start doing, stop doing, in order to actively create some financial breathing room in your life? To live in a way so that whatever comes in doesn't go right out. What would it look like to remove yourself from the 60% of Americans that are living paycheck to paycheck? For example, just one example. Maybe it's deciding, you know what, I'm going to drive a used car instead of a new car. It's making the decision to say, you know what, I'm going to get a used car when my lease runs out. And yeah, I could afford a new car, but 
just because I can afford it doesn't mean I have to have it. And honestly, driving a used car would free up some money to do some other things in my life. It would give me some extra at the end of the month. What would it look like for you to live below your means and finally have some financial peace in your life? Next. Paul says something about all of our stuff. Quite sobering, actually. All the stuff many of us are trying to go, or going broke, trying to get, I should say. He says this. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. In other words, when you die, when your life's over, you can't take your stuff with you. You leave it all behind. And so if that's the case, my question to you is this. Other than your stuff, what will you leave behind? You see, today, Jesus and Paul, they're challenging us. They're saying, instead of wasting your life chasing things that ultimately have no value in the end, no lasting value, no eternal value, they're calling us to take what we have, what God has entrusted us with, and use it to serve God and to serve others. That is to give our stuff some eternal value. Which means that when you finally leave this world, you won't leave behind just things. You'll leave behind a legacy. So, have you given back? Have you poured into the lives of other people? Have you invested at all in God's kingdom? Or, Will your life be defined as one long pursuit of more? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to talk about a topic that is difficult. Lord, our finances, our, our, our money has always been a problem for humanity. It is a reason why your son spent half of his parables talking about money because he knew the grip that it has on us, the damage that it can do in our lives, God. So many of us are stressed because of it. So many of us are living paycheck to paycheck, and this is not how you wanted us to live. I pray that today you would open our eyes. You would help us to think differently. You would challenge us to, to live according to your will, not ours. That we would put your kingdom before our kingdom, God. And if we do, you promise that you would take care of us. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but we can trust you in that. Lord, allow us to have financial breathing room. That we might be able to use the extra to make a difference some eternal, lasting value. We put all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.